With all my heart, I really truly believe that God is setting the stage for the return of His Son from heaven. The Bible teaches us that for the lost people of this world, Jesus' return will be like a thief in the night. They'll be caught by surprise. But not for God's people. For the Scripture says in 1 Thessalonians 5, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you like a thief. Now, I suppose in one respect it will be a surprise for all, and that no one knows the exact time, the day, or the hour. But for the unbeliever, it will be a shock. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are seeing sin grow and intensify as lawlessness continues to increase throughout the world. Today, Pastor Carl will address the atmosphere and moral conduct of people in the last days. And in these difficult times, he reminds us that the gospel is to warn men, women, boys, and girls of how they can find forgiveness in a guaranteed place in heaven. Today's sermon is entitled, Sharing Christ in the Last Days. Please join us in 2 Timothy chapter 3 as we begin. I want to invite you this morning to take your Bible and turn to the book of 2 Timothy. All the books that begin with the letter T are in the New Testament, and they're all together. They go from long to short. Thessalonians, that word is longer than the word Timothy. And the word Timothy is longer than the word Titus. So you have 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, then Titus. We're in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Now, these are challenging days in which we live, and we learn here in the third chapter that they're called the last days. They're called difficult times. They're called dangerous days. With all my heart, I really truly believe that God is setting the stage for the return of His Son from heaven. The Bible teaches us that for the lost people of this world, Jesus' return will be like a thief in the night. They'll be caught by surprise. But not for God's people. For the Scripture says in 1 Thessalonians 5, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you like a thief. Now, I suppose in one respect it will be a surprise for all and that no one knows the exact time, the day, or the hour. But for the unbeliever, it will be a shock. For the Christian, we shouldn't be shocked. We should be ready because this verse of Scripture says that we can understand something about the times and the seasons because we're not in darkness that as sons of light, we can be perceptive as to what is taking place, and we should be ready for the return of the Lord Jesus. Now, the Bible is clear that no one knows the exact day or the hour. And anyone who says, I know when he is coming, and there have been many date setters in the history of the church, you know right off they're a false teacher, that they have departed from Holy Scripture. Now, I've preached the Bible for a long time, and I've been a student of Scripture for a long time. And from what I understand from Scripture, God is clearly setting the stage. We are on a collision course for disaster for those who are left behind, but for great redemption for those who are taken up. And the purpose of the gospel is not to try to save this world from a wreckage. It's going to be wrecked. In fact, the whole planet someday will be burned. It's become almost a religion, global warming. People seem to worship the creation more than they do the Creator. God hasn't called us to save the planet. He's called us to save the people who live on the planet. 
He'll be over the events that we live in. The gospel is to warn men and women and boys and girls of how they can find forgiveness in a guaranteed place in heaven. With that said, let me just say this morning that we're in a series, and if you're here for the first time, we had some months back finished the epistle of James. Usually I preach through an entire book of the Bible, line by line, verse by verse. But sometimes between books, I'll do some special series, and we have been doing a series on sharing Christ, basically on evangelism. If you remember, we started on sharing Christ courageously, and we looked at Peter and the apostles who came under great persecution. But in spite of the persecution, because of deep-held convictions, they were willing to suffer, yes, even to die for the cause of sharing Christ. Then we moved from there to, and by the way, this is an important lesson for us to learn in our day. I spent a whole message on it because as we approach the end of the age, persecution will grow. It will become more and more difficult to name the name of Christ, and there will be increased persecution. Then we went to sharing Christ consistently, and we looked at the life of Philip. He was a deacon in the church. He was later dubbed Philip the Evangelist. One of the roles of an evangelist is they become a model of what God's people as a whole should be doing. Not only did he share with Uh, mass crowds up in Samaria. He also shared with single individuals, and we studied that encounter he had with the Ethiopian eunuch. Then we went to sharing Christ in the Spirit. Look, if you're not Spirit-filled, you're not going to have much success. If God brings someone into the kingdom, it won't be because of you. It will be in spite of you. And one of the reasons some Christians see so few people brought into the kingdom through their testimony is because they're really not Spirit-filled people. And then if you were here last time, we spoke about sharing Christ with others. And we looked at John 3 and Christ's encounter with Nicodemus. And he really taught us how to make the gospel clear. Today, the final message in this series, you can see it's entitled, Sharing Christ in the Last Days. So let's begin by reading our passage. I hope you have found it. It sounds like it. 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning now in verse 1. But realize this that in the last days difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these." For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Janus and Jambres oppose Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men of depraved mind rejected in regard to the faith. But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Janus and Jambres' folly was also. Now remember, Paul is not under house arrest. He's in a dark, dank, dirty Roman prison. He's about to be officially condemned, and if the tradition is right and we have much sources on it, he is going to be beheaded. So he's living under the shadow of execution, He is writing to his son in the faith, Timothy. For 30 years, Paul had in season and out of season preached the gospel. 
And he wants Timothy to continue to battle for the truth. He wants the gospel to go forward after he's dead and gone. And so the question that dominated Paul's mind is, who would do it? How would it unfold? Listen, from a divine point of view, he understood completely that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. But he also knew from a human point of view that God uses men and women, and yes, even boys and girls, to bring people into the kingdom. So he writes this letter. It's his last letter that he will ever write. It's his last will and testament, encouraging him to preach, to teach, and to defend the gospel. Uh, Here's the book. Uh, I taught it once 20 years ago. And here's the outline I came up with. It divides into four simple parts. In chapter 1, he's commanded to guard the gospel. In chapter 2, he is called to suffer for the gospel. In chapter 3, he's called to continue in the gospel, no matter how dark the days may get. And then in chapter 4, none of that does any good if you don't preach the gospel. The gospel must be preached. You think of it, well, from a pulpit like this, that's a small part of it. Most of it takes place during the week. After the church is gathered and we scatter to our various locales, we have opportunities. So knowing that the opposition is strong, knowing that the days are evil, he wants Timothy to be able to minister effectively in the last days. And so first, he's going to address something about the atmosphere of the last days. And so that's where we begin this morning, the atmosphere of the last days. Roman numeral one, if you're taking notes, if you're online, there is a place to print out an outline. Notice how verse 1 opens, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Now, there are two critical truths that I want us to learn from the very first verse. Number one, we are living in the last days. We are living in the last days. Now, with that said, I think it's helpful to define some important biblical words, especially, especially this phrase, the last days. See, most people think of the term last days as that final frontier just before Jesus comes. And that, as we will see this morning, is certainly part of it, but it's much broader than that. The New Testament doesn't allow us to restrict that term just to the final days before Jesus comes from heaven. In fact, the Bible is divided really into two halves. There's the Old Testament and there's the New Testament. There's the new covenant, there's the old covenant. There was the old deal, there's the new deal. And so under the new deal, we're living in a new age. It arrived with the first coming of Christ. And Peter believed that. If you remember in the day of Pentecost, he stood up and preached. And he said in Acts 2, quoting the prophet Joel, but this, what they had just witnessed, the coming of the Holy Spirit, what we read in the pastoral prayer, that because sin would be forgiven, we would have under the new deal, under the new diatheke, a new relationship with God that no Old Testament saint could dream of, where the Spirit of God would be implanted in our hearts. What they had just witnessed is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit upon mankind. So from Peter's perspective... He was living in the last days with the coming and the indwelling of the Spirit of God. Likewise, the writer to the Hebrews identifies the last days with the coming of the Lord Jesus. Listen to the opening epistle, opening a chapter. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, 
has spoken to us through his son. So the New Testament teaches with the birth of the church, we have entered into a new realm that's called the last days. And we know that not simply from the usage of the term outside of 2 Timothy 3, but it's clear when you read this text of Scripture that we're studying this morning that Paul doesn't restrict it simply to the very end of time. Uh, he is going to say in verse 5, as he gives a description of the last days and the people who will be ruling the last days, avoid such men as these. So there's an assumption that there would be people alive in Timothy's day that he was to avoid because these were men who are leading in the last days. So um, it's an important term because sometimes we use the term very loosely. People say, well, we're in the last days. Well, you're right, we are. But the bigger question, are we living in the last of the last days? And we are going to think our way through that this morning. Now, understand for the rapture of the church, prophetically, nothing ever has had to happen for Jesus to come back and to catch up his church. The word rapture comes from the Greek word harpazo. That means to be caught up. We shall all be caught up. And in the Latin translation of the Bible, it's raptore. We get our English word rapture from it. Every Christian believes in the rapture. When you meet a Christian who says, well, I don't believe in the rapture, he just doesn't know what he's talking about. You mean to tell me you don't believe the church is going to be caught up someday into a new resurrected body? Well, yeah, I believe that. Well, that's the rapture. The question is, when does the rapture happen? And as you read the New Testament, it is clear that the return of Christ for his church is imminent, could happen at any moment. But the second coming is part of a predicted program. There's all kinds of prophecy that must be fulfilled for the second coming to happen. For instance, we need a one-world ruler. We need a one-world government. We need a one-world market where no one can buy or sell anything unless they take uh, the mark of the Antichrist's name and the number that is equivalent to his name, 666. And all of that will ultimately take place during the time of the Great Tribulation period. Jesus referred to it in Revelation 3 as the hour of testing that will come upon the whole world. There has never been an hour of testing that has come on the whole world, but it's going to come after the church is removed. But what is so interesting is that when you see God laying the foundation for the second coming, certainly he could have caught up the church at 100 A.D. But then the Jews who at that point were scattered throughout the planet, he would have had to have brought them back to fulfill all kinds of prophecy. And he would have had to have done a lot, but he could have. But the fact that we are seeing prophecy in our day fulfilled for the second coming, we know the rapture is that much closer. And both Moses and the Lord Jesus predicted that there would come a time in Israel's history where they would be scattered throughout the world. But then at the end of time, before the second coming, they would be regathered onto their land. Listen to what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 27. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. Jesus taught the same thing. He refined the time. He identified when what Moses wrote was actually going to happen. And so as you read the Olivet Discourse in Luke chapter 21, verse 24, he is predicting the destruction of the temple. They're sitting on the Mount of Olives, Peter, James, John, Andrews, and they said, look at that magnificent temple, Lord. 
He said, a day is coming when not one stone will stand upon another. And they, he adds, will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations, speaking about the Jews. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And that's exactly what began to happen in 70 AD. The majority have happened in 70 AD, and by 132, really the Bar Kokhba uh, rebellion, it was all over. They were scattered to the ends of the earth. Listen to Deuteronomy 28. Moses again gives the same warning. Moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. He's not talking about their being scattered to Assyria or later to Babylon. He's talking about the Jews being scattered from one end of the earth to the other. Moses also wrote 1,400 years before Christ in Deuteronomy 30. If you're outcast or at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you back. So he predicts you're going to be scattered to the ends of the world, but then the Lord God is going to bring you back. Eight centuries later, Ezekiel predicts, their, their gathering, he said, for I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. In Ezekiel 38, he tells us that this regathering will happen at the end of time. Listen, after many days, you will be summoned in the latter years. You will come into the land that is restored from the sword, whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations. Now, who would have ever believed that Israel would become a nation? See, the centuries went by and people began to reason, well, maybe we've misunderstood the Scriptures. Maybe God is done with Israel. It's called replacement theology today. It's largely taught and reformed in covenant circles, covenant theology circles. The fancy term is supersessionism. But they say, well, the church is the new Israel. We have replaced Israel because of their unbelief in Jesus. And the centuries went by, and a thousand years went by, and they thought, clearly God's done with the Jews. In 1900, there's always been a remnant of Jews in Israel, even after 70 AD, but just in the thousands. There was approximately in 1900, it was the height of their remnancy. It was estimated there was about 20,000 Jews at that time living in Israel. On the day they became a nation, there were 600,000 Jews in Israel. And of course, they declared their independence. And after they declared their independence, a hundred million Arabs said, we don't like that you are independent and we're going to destroy you. <laughs> but they couldn't be destroyed. God protected them supernaturally. And again, he would gather them from the four corners of the earth. And so today we have just under 7 million Jews. There's only approximately 12 and a half million Jews on the whole planet. And the final regathering happens at the second coming. For those who never made it back into the land, God will send out his angels and bring the rest back. But understand for the Olivet Discourse and the final prophetic schedule to unfold, you know, you who are in Judea, flee to the wilderness. Uh, someone's going to go, go into the temple and, and commit the abomination of desolation. For all those things to happen, the Jews had to be back in the land. 
And so people just ended up spiritualizing the book of Revelation. We studied it. I did 72 hours of preaching on the Revelation. If you're listening online, you can get the Search the Scriptures app. They're called preterists. They view, with the exception of the literal second coming, it's all history. The whole book of Revelation is history. You have to spiritualize the passages. You have to spiritualize what Jesus said. Look, all the prophecy for the first coming was literally fulfilled. You can expect the same for the second coming. So when you see, A, the Jews back in the land, which God said he'd do at the end of time, you say, how much time do we have? I don't know. Over 70 years, he brought nearly 7 million Jews back into Israel. Do we have another 10 years or 50 years? I don't know. No one knows the day or the hour. But we know that we are in that season of what will happen at the end of time. In addition to that, Jesus likened his second coming, remember, no prophecy needed for the rapture, to the coming of the days of Noah, which were days of moral permissiveness, and he likened it to the coming of the days of Lot, which were days of moral perversion. So when you take the moral climate, added with the fact that Israel is back in the land, then you shouldn't be ignorant as concerning the times and the seasons that this day will overtake you like a thief. And so sin is growing. It's intensifying. And Jesus said it would. He said, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. And Paul will make the same statement here in verse 13 of this chapter. He tells us that sin and evil is going to intensify. But evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So before you can have the birth pangs, people say all the time, well, we're experiencing the birth pangs. These aren't the birth pangs. The birth pangs happen after the water breaks. The water will break when the church is removed. And when you study Matthew 24, the birth pangs in verses 3 through 14 perfectly parallel the sealed judgments. And then there's an event called the abomination of desolation. Happens right in the middle of this seven-year period. And what follows in the rest of that chapter perfectly parallels the uh, trumpet and bold judgments that will follow. So nothing has to happen again for the second coming, but God is setting the stage. And so I think when you put it all together, you can confidently say, we are now in the last of the last days. So in the truest sense, we are living in the last days, but I think we are now living in the last of the last days. Secondly, we are living in difficult times. We're living in difficult times. Uh, Notice again how verse 1 opens, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. The King James says, perilous times shall come. The NIV 84 says, terrible times in the last days. So ever since the birthday of the church, ever since the coming of Pentecost, the church has faced difficult, perilous, terrible times, and church history certainly confirms that. The Greek adjective that is translated here as difficult is found in one other place in the New Testament. It's used to describe the Gerasene demoniacs. Two of them, and Matthew in describing them, says they were so exceedingly violent that no one could pass by the road. The same word is used outside of the New Testament to describe a dangerous and ferocious animal. He's just basically telling us that as we move and progress, things will go from bad to worse, and that's what the Lord said as well, that things will get worse, things will get evil. And there's a moral and social and political, even international darkness that seems to be growing by the month. 
And so while no one knows the exact time, no one knows the hour, it would be foolish for you to try to guess the exact time because no one knows the exact time, but you should be ready all the time because Jesus can come back at any time. We are to be ready because he could come back today. He could come back before this service is over. And as you pick up the newspaper, which I guess people don't do much anymore, they read the internet, you can see that there's a rapid moral decline that is happening. And so it's important to understand that while there's always been sin, it's not going to be uniform in its expression. That at the end of the age, it's going to grow deeper and broader and more intense. And so we live in a day where things are being accepted, things that we never would have accepted. And so we need to ask an important question here because it seems somewhat obvious. Why is it that Paul tells Timothy that he needs to realize or the Net Bible says, and rightly so, understand, that's the sense behind the word, that he needs to realize and understand that difficult times would come. I mean, after all, Paul's in prison. He'd been arrested, chained, and he's getting ready to be beheaded. Timothy understood that all in Asia had deserted Paul and he, and with the exception of the house of Anesiphorus. So, I mean, we're in difficult times. Why are you telling him to understand something that he already knows? I think two reasons. One, he wants to remind us that this is not a passing characteristic that the church will experience. And that's important because there's a whole group of theologians today, largely led out of the state of Iowa, who are telling us that things are going to get better. They're not going to get better. Things in the end, very clearly, plainly, will get worse. It's going to go from bad to worse. And so, one, he doesn't want us to think that this is just some passing characteristic. But secondly, he wants us to know that ultimately it will get harder and harder. And he didn't know if the Lord would return in the first century or whether the Lord would return in the 21st century. He just wanted them to be ready to be forewarned is to be forearmed. And so that's the atmosphere of the last days. Secondly, if you're taking notes, we want to think for just a few minutes about the agents of the last day, the agents of the last day. In verse 2, the Apostle Paul immediately goes on to tell us, for men will be. Men are the agents of the trouble that will come upon the church. Now, if you're reading the Greek New Testament, it says anthropoi. We get our word anthropos. It means men and women alike. It's a generic term. And so the new New American Standard that came out in 2020 says people. People will be. And that's the sense. He's not talking just about literal physical men, but he's talking about people. And we refer to men that way. I know people get all bent out of shape, you know, oh, you can't say men, and you got to, you know, look, men are men, people, okay? Now, the Bible uses a different word when it just wants to talk about literal men, but he's talking about people. Now, according to Romans 8 and verse 7, by nature, people are rebels. We are opposed to the law of God. Join us next week, Monday, as Pastor Carl continues his sermon on sharing Christ in the last days. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program Sharing Christ in the Last Days, 021. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. You can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search the Scriptures app found on the iTunes and Google Play Store. Also, 
check out Audrey's podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. You can also listen to her podcast at searchthescriptures.org. We hope that you will join us next week as we continue to search the scriptures.